Hi, I'm James Anderson Foster, and you're listening to Out on the Fringe, a weekly podcast of awesome serialized science fiction written by amazing authors, performed for you by professional narrators, and brought to you by SerialAudio.com. It's totally binge-worthy. Serial Audio presents Convergence, written by Michael Patrick Hicks, performed for you by Travis Baldry. Episode 2 Chapter 3 I made it back to the tents before nightfall. The PRC guard stationed at the camp's entrance gave me the usual pat-down, wanded me, and then ran me through the security clouds. I was allowed to pass through the gate and the chain-link fence and into what used to be a rec center. Traffic had been stop and go the whole way through. The explosions had shut down the 101, and vehicles making their way off the freeway had congested the surface roads after police shut down the on and off ramps and redirected everybody. Nobody was happy, and it didn't take long before motorists tried to find shortcuts and new routes, gumming up the works even further. The bus ride home had taken an hour and a half to get out of Chinatown and into Echo Park. My eyes were tired and gritty, and my headache was building up to a migraine. The dim lights were already too glaring, and I was squinting against them. I was moving slowly, and people swarmed around me as they made their way through the checkpoints. The line to get in had been long, and it only grew longer as curfew drew closer. The guards had quickly come to recognize us, but they knew not to become complacent. Four months ago, a suicide bomber detonated herself while in line and killed 26 people. She'd waited until she was close to the cloud so that she could take out a few PRC guards, but the casualties were largely civilian. Every security check was exactly the same, a long, methodical process that was sometimes slow depending on the luck of the draw. The guards' temperament that day and whether or not you were stuck behind a family or the elderly determined how random the random full-body searches were. As I neared the final checkpoint, a fed-up guard got in my face and began swearing at me in Chinese. Nobody paid much attention. He cussed me out for several minutes, pausing intermittently to poke me in the chest with a bony finger, prodding me to nod along. A few of the other guards laughed, and after another brief round of verbal abuse to delight his audience, he pushed me forward. Past the final gate, people milled around, deciding what to do next. A small cafeteria doled out rations of thin, greasy soup, or they could join up with a line forming at the opposite end of the rec center to make their way into the camp and back to the tents they called home. I wasn't hungry, but I wasn't sure I was ready to go home yet either. I figured, fuck it, and stood in line anyway. The PRC was a fan of redundancy. That afternoon's freeway bombing had them on high alert, and I couldn't blame them. People were trying to kill them on a regular basis. People who lived there, in the tents. People like me. People who remembered a life before the war and the way things used to be and resented the way things had become. People who would fight and die to reclaim a small piece of the past. So they had checkpoints at each entrance and exit. Getting out was barely easier than getting in. They checked people out, scanned ID cards, and scanned people back in before admitting them into the checkpoints in the rec center. Then the process started all over again to get out of the rec center and into the tent grounds. The line from the rec center to the tents was short and it moved more quickly. 
My head hurt, and the setting sun gave off a bright glare as I passed through the entrance. Outside were rows and rows of Quonset huts and tent shelters. The jogging and bike trails, palm trees, a man-made pond with a beautiful fountain, and the downtown skyline were all gone. The trees had been burned, the pond had been drained and used up. A series of carpet bombings had wiped out much of the skyline. What remained of downtown were ruined shells. Once tall skyscrapers stood like jagged, broken teeth in a bloodied jaw. The Echo Park neighborhoods were gone, and with them, the boundaries that had divided it between the 101 and the 110. The Heights were gone. Baudry was gone. The only things the 110 divided anymore were the tents and no man's land, where all the dead were buried in ruins of concrete and ash. All that was left was Tent City, a small camp where the survivors and their families were allowed to congregate and live. Echo Park was a prisoner camp in all but name. Barbed wire was strung at the top of the tall fences, and guards patrolled the watchtowers at each corner of the camp. The efforts at visible security were for their protection as much as ours. Those of us living inside had no love for the PRC, but practicality had its place. Tent City beat living in the streets, trying to scrounge out a living among the gutters and sewers of our decimated city. The PRC did not treat the homeless well, and automatically presumed them to be a threat. Often they were shot on sight. Those of us in the camps had it a little bit better. We were issued day passes. We were allowed to leave and were expected to return before curfew. And we did, all the time, because these tents were all we had left. The camp was shelter, if not home. They were the last bit of normalcy we knew. The lot of us, we remembered four walls, comfortable living rooms, and kitchens that carried memories of family. We hadn't forgotten the beds we'd tucked our children into, or the beds we'd made love in inside those four walls. But they had been replaced with tan canvas staked to the ground and zippered flaps for a door, or we slept in bunk beds under a rounded tin roof with a hundred-plus souls crammed inside, where the bodies heated the room to stifling and the stale air was rank. I had an old tent riddled with rough patches. It fit, too, me and Mesa, but most nights I was alone. The dual-separating zippers on the flap were locked together with a small brass padlock. Anyone who wanted to could have picked it or cut through the thin canvas. The lock was more for peace of mind than security. I fished out a key, unlocked it, then relocked the zippers from the inside. Small window flaps on each side of the tent were unrolled and let in enough light to see. I zipped those back up, trying to make the tent as dark as possible. I shut my eyes against the rest of the dimness. I lay on my thin cot, resting my head on an equally thin pillow. I felt shitty. Too fucked up to get really fucked up. I slept, and when I woke, the sky was dark. Bugs smacked against the tent, tiny thuds in the dark. I was thirsty and couldn't remember when I'd last had water. I kept a small pot in the footlocker at the end of my cot, along with a couple glasses that weren't exactly clean, a worn-out, ragged toothbrush, a small, chipped mirror, and a few days' worth of clothes that weren't exactly dirty. My name and ident designates were stamped and sewn into the collars of my shirts, the waists of my pants and underwear, and the tops of my socks so that they could be laundered by the community service and returned to me by some kid who had been volunteered for the light labor duties until he was old enough to work the reclamation gangs. The dreamer pad was still in my pocket. A couple data-slash-mem chips were hidden in the locker beneath a fake panel that none of the random inspections had been able to suss out yet. I grabbed the pot and stood in line for water. The hour was late and the line was short. 
I had missed the dinner rush, and the small gathering around me was getting their fill to prepare for morning. PRC guards, a dark Latino man, and a pouty-looking light-skinned black woman stood on either side of the water spigot. Timmons was imprinted on her shirt. The stamping was dull and worn out. The Latino's shirt was so faded that I couldn't make out his name. She had her rifle slung over her shoulder and was responsible for rationing out the water, while the man held his weapon casually between both hands, relaxed but ready. Timmons was sweating in the evening heat. The top two buttons of her shirt were unbuttoned and barely hid a string of numbers tattooed along her collarbone. A nine and sixteen were plainly visible, but the rest were hidden beneath the dark green uniform top. The numbers corresponded to letters of the alphabet, a P and an S, which had probably meant she had been a member of the Crips gang in her former life. The PRC had attracted the disenfranchised early in the war. They had unleashed thought bombs on all the major urban hubs and poorer sections of the city. When the bombs exploded, they unleashed clouds of broadcast particles that quietly, but incessantly, whispered propaganda in the people's ears and flashed videos of promise in their eyes. Wind currents had carried the particles through the city, into businesses and homes. The messages had forced their way into people's heads like a catchy pop rock song, impregnating minds with a future ideal more glorious than anything America could offer, calling for pacifism and offering food, clothing, and jobs. Evacuation efforts were focused on downtown L.A., Hollywood, and Silicon Valley, where all the money was, where all the power brokers and campaign donors lived. The National Guard had been on hand to quell riots and ensure that the borders dividing the rich from the poor were maintained violently. For people in Compton, Inglewood, Echo Park, Watts, and Hacienda Heights, the thought bombs had confirmed something they had learned a long time ago. Their government would do nothing to help them. They were on their own. Allegiances shifted quickly. I couldn't help but think that the winds of change would soon shift again. People would wake up to see what the new order was really about and get sick of how long reclamation and rebuilding was taking. Soon they would want more than they were being given and trouble would flare up again. Discontent would build. Those like Timmons, who had bought into the Pacific Rim's propaganda and traded one gang for another, were in store for an awful wake-up call. I shuffled forward and put my pot under the spigot. Timmons turned the knob and the water flowed, clean and cold. Sometimes, early in the morning, it came out rusty brown, and the guards decided to either let it run clear, or let you take it as it was, or walk away with nothing. I tried to go later in the morning or evening whenever possible, figuring I could avoid confrontation over the rust. I didn't want to die over brown water. I moved on, and the lady behind me stepped up. I was a few paces away when voices rose, turning heated. I turned back out of curiosity in time to see Timmons punch an older black lady in the face. The old lady had cut her lips on her teeth and she spat at Timmons' face. The Latino clubbed her with the butt of his rifle, sending her to her knees and taking the feistiness right out of her. She cradled her head, lying in a fetal position in a small depression of mud worn into the earth by feet and loose spray from the spigot. He radioed for backup, and a terse response came back quickly. The line of people stood still. Everybody stared blankly at anything other than the woman and the guards. When Timmons looked up, I made eye contact with her and she strode forward. We weren't supposed to make eye contact with the guards because the Chinese viewed it as a deliberate provocation. A simple expression could be a death sentence, particularly with a former gangbanger. She unhooked the leather guard on her holster and drew her pistol. 
She knocked my pot away from me, sloshing water over our boots as the pot hit the dirt. It bounced, landing upended, spilling the rest of the water in a fast deluge. She stared at me, her gun hanging loosely at her side. Her nostrils were flared, and a violent patchwork of blackheads freckled the bridge of her nose and her cheeks, dotting the darker pouches beneath narrow eyes. Anger and hate were carved into her stony face, and beneath that were embarrassment, an abundance of pride, and a very strong urge to shoot me for no reason at all. I averted my eyes and let my head fall. My shoulders slumped, making my posture relaxed and non-confrontational. I was burning up inside, pissed off that she'd cost me my water, but I said, and did, nothing. I let her gaze burn into me for a hard, long minute. She turned to walk away, shaking her head. She didn't holster the gun until she was back at the spigot. I picked up my pot, thought about getting in line again, and decided against it. Timmons was watching me, her eyes boring into me, making the line of people wait until I was gone, waiting for them to cast some of their scorn and resentment my way. The pot was flecked and streaked with dirt and dust, and mud was caked against the steel rim. I brushed it off with my hand as best as I could. I nodded to her as two PRC hurried past me and grabbed the old woman by either arm and hauled her to her feet. She was dazed and crying as they quickly took her away. I moved off, and the shock of the sudden violence wore off. People got back to normal. Just another day at the camp. The old woman would be taken to solitary and locked up for a few days in a hot metal cage with no windows and merely a hint of ventilation. She probably wouldn't live through it. Thinking about her trapped and dying, slowly being cooked to death, I needed a drink of something stronger than water. One hand in my pocket, my fingers playing with a set of mem chips I carried. Jamie would be glad to have the chips. He ran a small makeshift bar and restaurant, a real DIY venture he'd scrounged up out of the earth, and I knew I could get food and a drink there. My dry mouth and rumbling stomach made my decision. I made my way through the twisting alleys between the tents, shimming away mosquitoes. Curfew would be coming up soon, and parents would start rounding up the children, playing nearby in small groups, kicking a beat-up old soccer ball back and forth. Voices were hushed, but the hum of conversations went on, filling the night air. I wasn't in any rush to get to Fingerlings, even though I greatly welcomed the cool burn of a shot. When I made it there, the bar was getting crowded. It occupied a decent-sized lot not too far from the habitation zones. The PRC, by and large, did not prohibit the use and sale of alcohol, but they frowned upon excess, public intoxication, and disorderly behavior. Drinking too much and being an ass was a good way to get hurt or killed. A guard tower in the northeast corner overlooking the wreck lot and fingerlings kept the area well lit for constant supervision. Jamie had built the bar from scrap wood rounded up during reclamation runs. Even the small canvas tarp hanging over the bar was shoddy and riddled with small holes. What little liquor could be found in the bombed-out ruins of L.A. had been hoarded by those living out in the ruins or gathered by reclamation workers. Any booze that was found and sold to people like Jamie was slowly dispensed, but Christoph had set up quite a microbrewery and distilled his own whiskey. Tabletops were scarred and mismatched, and hardly any of the chairs came from the same set. The bench seat from an old Buick had been installed on some cinder blocks to provide additional seating. I took a seat at the bar and put my pot up on it. I glanced around and nodded at a few familiar faces, then watched a few of the women dancing while I waited for Jamie. He knew what I wanted, which made ordering easy. 
He set down a tumbler filled with amber, and I took a slow, appreciative sip. The whiskey, smooth and mellowed with a few drops of water, had notes of chocolate, honey, coffee, and oak. It warmed my chest from the back of my throat to deep inside my belly. I savored it, then held the tumbler up away from the bar, ready for the next sip. People tried to slam Jamie's whiskey, but that was a total disservice to his craftsmanship. This was a sipping whiskey that should be taken slowly and enjoyed. Its taste was made for studying and appreciating. Here you're on a reclamation tomorrow, Jonah, he said. I nodded. I knew where this was going. If you find anything, could be worth some credits here. His arms were folded on top of the bar. He wore a natty denim shirt with the sleeves cut off. He had an old novelty tattoo animated by nanofilaments on his upper bicep. The tattoo was of a skull smoking a long, thin cigarette. The ash lit up orange and slowly died down as a cloud of smoke wafted from the skull's black nostril pits and drifted up his arm. It paused, then started up again, always with a small flicker between the playback cycles. Maybe he'd missed a software update or the nanos were dying and cycling down. Soon he would have a regular old tattoo instead of a cheap parlor job that had gone out of style a decade ago. Well, look. I assured him. I always did. Sometimes I even found stuff he could use. A bottle of Jack, maybe some wine. Most times I struck out. Most of the liquor and convenience stores had been looted from top to bottom ages ago. Still, it never hurt to look. Alice had a friend here earlier, Jamie said. It piqued my interest, but I knew what that meant. Her friend had probably requested that I make it into the reclamation sites. Jamie confirmed my suspicion. Said if you find any bodies out there, you should chip them. Said Alice would be mighty appreciative. I nodded again. The reclamation sites out in the ruins of L.A. were never short of bodies. More often than not, they were wired for upgrades and memory backups. The dead were usually easy pickings. I wondered what Alice was searching for or if she was becoming an addict. She'd been taking an awful lot of chips lately. Jamie had long salt and pepper hair that he pulled back into a ponytail. The light struck him in a peculiar way, and I was hit by how old he seemed. I knew he was in his late fifties, but suddenly the scars were older, the wrinkles deeper. His left arm and most of his hand was covered in a thick blanket of twisted, warped flesh. He'd said a deep fryer accident from way back when had burned him all to hell, but it didn't jibe. A long, puckered scar ran across his face and under his cheekbone. I never talked with him about it, but I'd overheard him telling a customer about the burn once before. He reached under the bar and came up with a small, paper-thin tablet. Old tech, probably smuggled in from out east or way up north. A mess of cables was routed through it. The illegal hack job picked up the news feeds and info lines. It came to life at my touch, the screen filling with small text. Your handiwork got some press. A smile touched his lips. The authorities had no leads, the news piece claimed. The article's source was a Sacramento feed. The PRC was attributing the Shang's murder to Liberty's Children, a terror cell based in Los Angeles. The article was at the bottom, so I scrolled back up to the top, to the breaking news banner and images of burning cars on the 101. A woman, her face smudged black and her hair a bloody paste against her skull and forehead, cradled a small boy who was maybe five or six. His head was canted at an unnatural angle, and a large blackened piece of shrapnel jutted from his neck. Her face was timid and placid, frozen in shock. So did yours. I turned the pad, slipping a copy of the mem chip I'd burned from the shang into a data slot. 
the memories would comp me on the whiskey and food. We've had a productive couple of days then. Fingerlings was Jamie's public face. His hidden one was more violent and much more dangerous. He operated a cell of freedom fighters made up mostly of ex-American soldiers, army guys who had gone AWOL after the United States officially withdrew from combat operations and declared California a lost cause. Although I lacked any formal military training, I'd found over the years that I could kill well enough, and Jamie had found uses for me. We bumped fists, and I took another sip of whiskey. When the burn faded, I asked him for an order of his cheesy potatoes. Aside from the whiskey and craft beers, the potato dish was what he was famous for around here. The name of the bar came from the fingerling potatoes, cut into one-inch slices and fried in bacon grease, then smothered in Roquefort bechamel and topped with bacon and green onions that he grew behind the bar. He grew the potatoes in a community garden, and somebody who must have been artisanal in a past life made fancy cheeses for him. In my past life, most of my cheeses had come wrapped in plastic sleeves or out of a spray can. Some of the park had been cleared out and reclaimed into farmland, with homegrown butchers selling beef, ham, and bacon from the imported cows and pigs they raised there. Civilization was on the rebound, some said. I skimmed through the pirated news feeds, trying to get a grasp on the world around me. The final death count stemming from a shootout between PRC and militia forces near the Hollywood Bowl the previous day had risen by three. One was a PRC casualty. The other two were UN peacekeepers who had responded to support the PRC and attempted to quell the violence. A UN spokesman offered up a sanitized quote about the emerging peace, how California as a whole was becoming a more stable region, and that peace itself was a constantly ongoing effort. PR fluff. A sidebar made brief mention of UN inspections of the state's various refugee camps and said those they had visited so far had received passing marks with minimal suggestions for improvement. Smaller stories told about other UN peacekeeping casualties in Sacramento, where insurgents opened fire on a squad of soldiers from Scandinavia. A schoolyard bombing at a PRC state-run facility had blown 13 children to bits during their morning recess, and another 20 students and eight teachers had been injured. An editorial that had been picked up from the Times-Picayune encouraged Los Angelinos, if they were reading, to move forward and embrace the future. The war was over, the New Orleans writer said, and after four years the time had come to lay down arms, for what was left of America to rally together and join hands in the unity of brotherhood. Fucking armchair quarterbacking without a single clue. The PRC had never made it as far east as Louisiana. Even with the support of their Russian and Iranian allies, they'd had their hands tied in Los Angeles and Beverly Hills, busy securing the offshore oil rigs that lined the coast from Long Beach to Santa Maria and seizing control of the Wilmington oil field, the third largest oil field in the nation, so that they could export that oil back to the resource-starved China. I refolded the tablet and slid it across the bar, back to Jamie. I'd read enough, and I worked hard at slowing my breathing, trying to quell the anger the newsfeeds had stirred. I was ready to go back to my tent and get fucked up again, but my stomach reminded me of other, more pressing needs. Behind me, a woman danced, her slender hips swaying back and forth with an easy rhythm. Long, sleek legs stretched out from a frayed denim skirt. Her arms were raised up over her head, her hands turning in waves and flicks of her wrists, her shirt lifting to expose a smooth, tanned belly and the lines of her hips. Watching her, I was reminded of other, largely ignored needs. The music was loud, as always, but nobody complained and the PRC didn't seem to care. Most of the Pac-Rim soldiers felt as trapped here as we did. 
This was our home, and I suspected some of the troops even viewed themselves as our neighbors. A few, the younger ones mostly, made attempts to be friendly. They hadn't been in-country very long and were dumb enough to think of this as an adventure. A man joined the woman and they danced together, their bodies pressed tight, hands roaming. I turned away, and a minute later, Jamie was sliding me a plate of potatoes. I ate slowly, trying to forget, trying to blank my mind. A flicker of movement caught my attention as someone sidled up to the bar beside me, slender arms hugging the bar top. She noticed my glance, and her eyes quickly darted away from mine, back down to the bar. She brushed a loose strand of hair behind her ear. Hey, she said. Hi, Mesa. I slid the potatoes over. Hungry? No, she said, without looking up at me. A tall, slender man with distinctly Asian features stepped up behind her, his hands going around her waist with an unsettling familiarity as he bent in to nuzzle her neck. Her hand came up to stroke the side of his face. Hey, she gave him a quick peck on the lips. You coming home tonight? I asked. She at least had the courtesy to pretend to think about it, softly biting her lip. No, she said, shaking her head slowly. And why not? Because it's not home. Her voice held an edge of exasperation from the hundred or thousand times we'd had this argument before. It's a fucking tent in the middle of a fucking park. We don't have a home. Hey, baby, the guy said, trying to soothe her. Shut it, we both told him. His eyes darted between us, not quite sure whom to be offended by. Quickly putting on the tough guy facade, he shot me a deadly stare. But he must have seen the look in my eyes and thought better of it. He squeezed Mesa's shoulder and told her he would be over by a table that he pointed to, then went to sit down. He's too old for you, I said. He's 26. You're 18. He's too old for you. What the fuck do you know? She asked. I shrugged. It was a good question. Maybe I used to know, but I wasn't quite so sure anymore. I know you ought to be at home, I said lamely. Still pissed, I added, instead of sleeping your way from tent to tent. My reflexes were quick, and I grabbed her wrist before she could slap me in the face. I forced her arm down, and she shot me daggers with her eyes. If looks could kill. I took another sip of whiskey, then offered her the glass. She took it, rifled the shot back hard and fast, then slammed the glass down on the bar, giving me all kinds of defiance. I signaled Jamie for another. Just one, I nodded to Mesa. Water for her. I hear Washington's relaxing its borders, she said, letting people in through Walla Walla and Vancouver, people who want to be repatriated. People who want to be Canadians, I said. I wondered about the black woman from the Shangs motel room the other night. She should have made it into Nevada by that afternoon. She probably had a better chance of making it to the Seasteads, but their immigration policies were tight, and breaking through naval patrols was a risky proposition at the best of times. I'm not asking you to go with me, she said. You don't owe me explanations. If you want to leave, you can try. Never stopped you before. I speared a potato and ate it quickly. She sat quietly, nursing her glass of water. Behind her, the woman danced on, oblivious to the pain around her, lost in her own days and the music. Bored and dejected, Mesa's boyfriend sat at a table, scratching at the scarred formica with his fingernails and picking at it. He PRC? I asked. No, he was a grad student. Now he's just one of us. Her voice trailed off and she slid the glass back and forth across the bar between her hands. We should go, she said. Be like old times, a road trip. She smiled, still staring down at the bar top. 
The smile was weighted with sadness, though, and the hurt in her eyes stabbed painfully at my heart. Mesa was older than her eighteen years. Her life had been hard, and she'd been forced into adulthood far too soon. Her ears were pierced. One was heavily and colorfully decorated with an assortment of studs and bars and costume jewelry pieces. The other ear had an old, thick, two-gigabyte USB thumb drive dangling from the lobe by a thin golden S-hook. The red and black drive was a custom job. Rugged and unfolded, the shiny metal tip hung loose from a hard shell of shiny plastic. I wondered if it held any data or if it was merely a fashion statement. A maze of tattoos sleeved her arm in shocking bursts of color and tangles of black. A long Japanese dragon, its scales red and green, flowed from a cluster of golden tulips, its large talons wrapped around a thick Gaelic cross. She'd had more coloring and detail added since I'd last seen her. It's nice, I said, surprised by how much I appreciated it. It spoke of her heritage, of her mother, and me. Thanks, she said, finally making eye contact with me. Will you come home tonight? I worried I sounded desperate, needy. Don't call it that, please. It's not home. Our home had walls and a kitchen and a bathroom. We had a TV and radios and photographs on the wall and mom's paintings and... This isn't home. She stared at me hard, urging me to understand a difficult foreign concept, imploring me to understand. Okay, I said. She nodded, slowly, as if I were stupid. I'll think about it. I'd heard that before, and it never meant what I wanted it to. Okay, I said again, not knowing what else to say. Realizing I didn't have anything else to say kind of hurt, so I said okay again and ate another potato smothered in a cold glop of congealing cheese. She took a potato too. When I looked at her, she giggled the way she had when she was younger, when I would catch her stealing food off my plate. Maybe it was a peace offering, a common ground rediscovered. She kissed me on the forehead, keeping her hand flush against the center of my back. You should sleep, she told me. We're going up the hill, there's a concert there. She was already moving off before I could say anything, before I said something stupid and caused another fight. My anger died, leaving me tired and desperate. Kids, huh? Jamie said. I shrugged. Wash your pot? He pointed at the smudges of dirt and mud. Thanks. I pushed my empty plate toward him. He took it and my pod and went to a small wash tub to clean them. I missed the feel of Mesa's hand on my back. I missed how I used to carry her when she was a tiny girl, her arms wrapped around my neck, and how she had found so much humor in life, so many things to laugh at. I wasn't sure how long ago I had last heard her laugh. A few years, at least, probably longer. She had her mother's long, jet-black hair. The slant of her eyes had been softened but not extinguished by my Irish blood. I could still hear her mother's laugh and feel the press of her lips against mine and the way her hands felt on me. I knew I was lost down dark roads I should have avoided, and suddenly I was angry again. Four years had passed since Celine's death, since the blackout, and since the end of my world. I'd spent much of my last night with her being an asshole, the irritation over small things had built up over a few days. Things like picking up the morning newspapers from the driveway, bringing in the mail, and putting dirty dishes in the dishwasher. She couldn't be bothered with these small tasks. She was content to run over the newspapers with her car on her way to work and then run over them again as she pulled into the garage at the end of her day. Mail and dirty dishes would accumulate for days on end to the point of overflowing before she could be bothered with them. 
She would remind me that we needed to clean the house over the weekend, which inevitably meant I would be the one cleaning the house. Or we needed to mow the lawn and spruce up the garden, but I couldn't remember the last time she'd ever done anything even remotely resembling yard work. I'd grown sick of it. I was tired of the accumulated weight of all these tiny chores and annoyed to walk in the house to find her sitting on the couch, watching TV. I'd had an attitude when she finally uncurled herself from the sofa to greet me, and it must have been radiating from me in thick, heavy waves. She'd asked me what was wrong, and I'd said something stupid, out of anger, and one thing led to another. We tossed bitter accusations back and forth until I wore her down and berated her to the point of tears. And then I made a simple pasta dish for dinner, but the act of cooking fueled my resentment and left me wondering why, again, I was the only one who ever contributed. The irritation kept rising, and we fought again. I was loud and belligerent when angered, quick to accuse, and fast to find her fatal flaws and pick at her quirks. I'd wanted my words to cut deep, and I was willing to settle for tears. I ate quietly, wrung out from the fighting, both physically and mentally. Her pasta sat on the plate, growing cold. She stared at it and picked at the food with her fork, but didn't eat. She tried to speak a few times, stammering out a word or two between lengthy pauses before finally giving up. Her whole body deflated as tears cut swaths through her makeup. I tried to make small talk rather than apologize, but she was on lockdown, afraid that whatever she might say would trigger another vengeful rant. I was almost proud of the way I had reduced her, but I was also disgusted with myself, and eventually I shut up and let the tension simmer between us, feeling guilty and ashamed. Then the blackout happened. The riots started. The explosions. The spreading panic. We didn't know about the attacks on Hawaii or the EMP blasts in Seattle, Tacoma, Portland, San Francisco, and Sacramento. We had no idea how coordinated and organized the attacks were. We never saw it coming. And I'd wasted the last few hours fighting with the love of my life, unaware that we were on borrowed time. Such an oblivious idiot. I shot back the whiskey, letting the burn choke me. I grabbed my pot from Jamie and left before I lost all my credits getting drunk, intent on punishing myself by getting fucked up again. In my tent, I let the memories crawl over me, jacked into the dreamer, my anger tempered by loss, sadness, and hate. I relived the old days of Mesa's birth, her first steps and her first words. I relived my life with Celine, her mother, remembering the better nights. I felt her touch again, remembering her fingers brushing through my hair and the feel of her lips against my mouth and kissing her way down my chest and stomach. All over again, I felt her taking me inside her and driving away all the pain and horror, thrusting against me, her hot breath gasping in my ear as we came. I was crying and we were fighting again. Then she was dead, Mesa was gone and I was lost and damned. And at some point, the sun had come up again, and I hated myself when I disconnected, tired and covered in cold sweat. Mesa never came home. Thanks for listening this week. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Out on the Fringe as much as we enjoy bringing it to you. Remember to come back next week or subscribe at SerialAudio.com so you never miss a new episode. 
You can learn more about this podcast and other serialized fiction shows by visiting our website at serialaudio.com. That's all one word, serialaudio.com, where you can subscribe to this and our other shows via RSS, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and all your favorite podcast players. While you're at it, if you're enjoying this podcast, we'd love it if you'd share it with your friends. Even better, if you have a few spare seconds, leave a review on iTunes. To help support this show, sign up as a patron at patreon.com slash serial audio. You'll get early access to episodes ad-free and special bonuses like behind-the-scenes author and narrator interviews. Thank you again from all of us at SerialAudio.com. It's totally binge-worthy.